You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Welcome to Beyond All Splendor, How to Read a Hymn for All It's Worth. That's a bit of a grandiose title, so I later changed it to 15 Essentials for Reading a Hymn. There have to be at least 15, right? Um, Is this the lofty spirit in which your heart soars when you sing hymns in worship, or is it a little bit more um, stressful? (laughs) Um, I'm borrowing the photo of the angelic choir um, from the Panorama of Christian Hymnody by Eric Routley, edited by Paul Richardson. Um, Two quotes might help us in our quest Um, Samuel Johnson, the famous 18th century literary critic, had said a good hymn is the hardest thing in the world to write. I would submit that it is also, uh, it requires our best concentration in um, analyzing or meditating on a hymn. And um, more recently, Peter Gomes of Harvard University, ours is an unpoetic age. Those are challenges that we face in wanting to unpack and mind the wealth of earlier historic hymnody. Um, I would begin with um, reading for accuracy. We need to ask what is a hymn saying? And this involves certainly um, grammar, syntax, um, punctuation is not an option. It is part of language. (laughs) Can I hear an amen? Amen. And um, poetic devices, including imagery, metaphor, and simile, may um, catch our attention and cause us to ask with greater concentration what the hymn is actually saying. Um, First, let's turn to um, a text that you have before you and keep that kind of in hand as we um, move forward. Um, I would just (coughs) suggest a couple of examples familiar to all of us. For instance, when you were younger, perhaps listening to It Is Well or singing It Is Well, did it ever catch you off guard to sing My Sin, Oh, the Bliss of This Glorious Thought? Um, The... (laughs) Poetic device there um, is uh, delaying the verb for actually two lines, and the verb doesn't come up until the fourth line of that particular stanza. So um, the poetic device is called parenthesis. In this case, it's um, being created by commas, which surround the inserted thought. And Spafford uses double parenthesis here to enforce the um, the arresting um, thought of um, of our redemption. So he says, "My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, has been nailed to the, um, my sin, not in part, but the whole." Thank you. So um, there's double parenthesis there, and then finally, the rest of the sentence follows at the end of that stanza, and the subject and verb of that stanza is sin has been nailed. Um, This kind of um, careful reading helps enrich our whole experience and helps us, um, if we've meditated on it, 
helps us in the singing experience when you're singing it in live time, so to speak. Um, we'll move um, into more detail as we analyze some of these hymn texts in front of you, but um, let's move right to point number two, biblical basis. Um, there are different levels of incorporating scripture in a hymn. One is simply the level of biblical allusion, and this appears all over hymnody, as well as English literature, Milton, Paradise Lost, all of that. But um, our biblical experience of a hymn is completely limited, limited by our biblical literacy. Um, it's no secret that biblical literacy has declined in the church, and um, so we have to make that stronger effort to dig. Um, I tell my students in every semester, a good hymn should make us thirsty for scripture and thirsty for God. A good hymn should make us thirsty for scripture. And it will. Um, dig until you hit bedrock. In some hymns, the uh, gold nuggets are lying out in the open in each stanza, and those are easy to follow. Um, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. What um, scripture passage is that hymn based on? Lamentations. Lamentations 3.23, thank you. So, And that the first stanza basically quotes the verse in full. So um, that kind of hymn I would call an exegesis of a single text, which is usually in the opening line. Um, 19th century hymn writer James Montgomery wrote a lovely hymn called Forever with the Lord. Anyone know where that phrase is from? Um, so often, often quoted at funerals. First Thessalonians 5 and so shall we be, uh, you know, we with are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. So shall we be forever with the Lord. It's a lovely meditation. I think it's about 14 stanzas. Um, using that as the opening line. So there can be a exegetical hymns. Um, the hymn writer, probably Wesley is the master of um, biblical allusion, which is in a mosaic, uh, essentially his 8,500 hymns. Thank you. Thank you. Many yeah. of them are a veritable mosaic of scriptural allusion. Um, <clears throat> Thirdly, um, just move on. Uh, Christology and theology proper. So I've given you blanks to fill in. If you would go ahead and um, complete those as we go. Christology is crucial. The church must sing of Christ. We have no other song. Um, and as uh, chapel preacher Juan Sanchez said just this week, what Jesus are you putting before your people? The all-glorious risen Christ or some other version of Jesus? Um, even in hymns within our hymnal and within the history of the church, um, we can get something of a wide spectrum. Um, turn to <coughs> the back of your handout. And um, on the right, 
on the right hand side um, a, a Watts text, a little known Watts text with holy fear and humble song, the dreadful God our souls adore, reverence and awe become the tongue that speaks the terrors of his power. The word become there is an archaism which means befit, reverence and awe befit um, the tongue that should be praising him. Well, the picture of eternal judgment and damnation for the unsaved is terrifying in this hymn, um, but he ends as a, actually an invitation to the unbeliever in verse 6, tremble my soul and kiss the sun, sinners obey the Savior's call, else your damnation hastens on. Where is the phrase kiss the sun? Where does that phrase come from? Thank you. It is the messianic psalm um, of Christ as the Lord's anointed um, and so the Son of God is presented here in a very um, sobering fashion as the judge. Um, let's turn our attention on the front page to a scripture text that I hope that you would recognize um, on which a different hymn is based. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Where is this passage from? Thank you. So Luke 4 is the account of Jesus' inaugural sermon. This sermon is so important. The scroll was handed to him, and he opened it to the book of, it was the scroll of Isaiah. He opened it to this passage and read, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me, and then we have this itemization to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says that the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. His inaugural sermon is every bit as important as the Sermon on the Mount, but for some reason this doesn't get as much attention. It was fulfilled that day, in part, we haven't seen the end. We haven't seen the acceptable day, the day of the Lord in terms of his glorious return. Um, but this sermon was enough to make them want to push him over the cliff and kill him after one sermon. Um, so very powerful. And it is Luke 4.18. Let's look at what Philip Doddridge, 18th century successor to Isaac Watts, does in seven stanzas with this hymn. And you have it um, on the back page as well. Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes, the Savior promised long. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. Stanza 2 introduces the anointing of the Holy Spirit in vivid detail, not only the pouring, which suggests oil, but the fire, which suggests Pentecost. Wisdom and might, he is the spirit of, of wisdom. And then we get into the itemization of what the ministry of Jesus will do and will entail. He comes the prisoners to release in Satan's bondage held. And then stanza four talks about the healing of blindness in quite vivid detail. Stanza five, the broken hearts, the bleeding soul. Stanza six brings us to uh, what would be Leviticus 25, the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee. And brings it into the gospel context of our debts are all remitted now, our heritage restored, and stanza seven, um, our glad hosannas, prince of peace, 
thy welcome shall proclaim. When would, has anyone ever sung this hymn? And when might it be used? When have you used it? Advent. Okay, so um, it's Jesus' inaugural sermon, but it's perfect for Advent because it's talking about his coming and his, as the anointed servant of God and what he, it would, what he would do. So I put the scripture up there for you um, just to compare it to the stanzas. And um, you can see how closely... Pa- Doddridge is paraphrasing this passage, but in a gospel context. He's the successor of Isaac Watts, whom, as we learned yesterday, was a pioneer, a pioneer, not the very first, but um, because Luther, all you need to do is sing a mighty fortress and see what Luther does in Christianizing a psalm, but Watts did it in the English language. Now, let's look at this stanza four. This might be the one, if you've not sung this song, this hymn, this might be the one problematic um, or difficult to unpack stanza, perhaps because of archaisms and perhaps because of mixed metaphor. Doddridge describes the coming of Christ um, as removing thick films of vice from the eyes of the Unbelievers, those who are in spiritual darkness. The thick film actually sounds clinical to me. It sounds like an ophthalmological condition. I feel like I'm in the chair for an eye procedure, and then, uh, and you can smell the rubbing alcohol. And then line two brings in the spiritual aspect to clear the <coughs> mental ray. So he's a bit of mixed metaphor. He's mixing, um, and then line three again. The eyeballs again evokes sort of cornea repair and and uh, a cataract, which is um, some tissue that is unwanted, that is causing blindness, that is causing prevention of vision. And God, Christ removes that, and instead to poor celestial day. What would the biblical... First, you have to ask again, what is it saying? And I wrote a paraphrase just for myself. He comes to clean the spiritual vision from layers of sin which blind our soul's sight. Is that a pretty fair um, rewording? He comes to pour divine heavenly light on those spiritual eyes, which is on our hearts. Um, And then let's go to the scriptural roots. We think of Jesus pouring in terms of liquid or or anointing or unction. He used mud on the eyes of the blind man. Um, And then the healing of um, Saul or Paul talks about scales falling from his eyes. Well, look at the um, handout I gave you, and you'll see how the revisions have attempted to address these. I put stanza four in dotted, um, in a dotted square box. Um, The top one is Doddridge's original, and then the Scottish um, Psalms of David in meter changed the films of darkness to scales, and they're drawing on the Paul, you know, the healing of Paul's blindness when he used to be. Saul of Tarsus um, to clear the inward sight and then finally I just gave a try at paraphrasing the entire stanza and if you do paraphrase um, do so humbly obviously I'm not at Doddridge's stature as a poet and I'm not a, a Puritan poet but he comes to give the blind their sight simple words are always best stick to simple words that's as clearly as I could put it the scales fall away of doubt and vice his gospel light brings in celestial day or you could put in the brackets drive darkness away 
um, of doubt and bias. That's my attempt at clarifying this. Um, one other revision that um, you'll see is Doddridge's original talked about the Jubilee of the Lord and um, the Psalms of David in meter translated that to the sacred year has now revolved accepted of the Lord. Um, when heaven's high promise is fulfilled and Israel is restored. Um, my strong feeling is that the Scottish Psalter is talking about us as the spiritual Israel, but still I don't think it's an improvement in terms of our modern language because we don't talk about years revolving very much. We talk about maybe the year has arrived, the year of the Lord or something like that. But um, those are some ways that clarity can be brought to um, really just one stanza of a gorgeous hymn. The rest of the hymn still reads clearly. Um, any questions on that? Um, so this was kind of the progression that I read those different versions and ultimately arrived at um, a, a simple paraphrase. Um, on the front of your handout, Let's keep going. Um, the Christology and theology is, is very important. So again, number four, what um, question, what names, images, or titles of Christ are in this hymn? Or what names, images, titles of God? Yesterday, earlier in this conference, um, Matt Boswell said that if we are not singing regularly about the Trinity, we're not Trinitarian. And um, so I need to add names, images, and titles of and ministries of the Holy Spirit as well. So not only what's your Christology and what's your theology proper, but what's your pneumatology or what is represented in this hymn. On, um, the topical index of a hymnal is like a portrait, in a sense, a snapshot of the church's priorities at a given time, or the church that produced the hymnal. And we don't want, at this time, I mean, we're singing about the cross and the finished work of Christ in so many hymns, and it's wonderful, but we do not want to see the Holy Spirit in a state of complete eclipse. The New Baptist hymnal um, has, I think, eight hymns on the Holy Spirit, hymns of grace, a few less. Um, about 200 on the ministry of Christ. Okay, so if you feel inspired by the Holy Spirit as a songwriter, um, think about the ministries of the Spirit and, and the, the anointing of Christ for his ministry, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is upon me, that, that's a great sort of hymn to launch your thinking, perhaps. Well, let's move to um, the second A, which I skipped over quite briefly because I wanted to save it for this Baxter hymn. And that second A is audience. So we do read for the audience, to whom is a hymn addressed? Um, do we sing hymns to... Okay, and you're on the front page now. Baxter, ye holy angel, angels bright. Do we sing hymns to angels? That's a non-starter. 
Okay, then what is this hymn saying? Um, let's look at all four stanzas and notice that actually itemization is being used um, and different groups of beings are addressed in each stanza. You, you holy angels, you blessed souls at rest, you saints who toil below, and my soul. Um, it turns out this is a call to worship him, not just for those of us here on the planet at the moment, but beginning with um, the heavenly worship and then um, <coughs> the saints at rest, or the saints above, saints below, and then um, a call to worship to my own soul, a, a bless the Lord on my soul kind of concept. So there's a progression. Um, <coughs> that's audience. Um, Augustine, in, incidentally, as you may know, the classic definition of, of a hymn going back to St. Augustine is that it be um, praise, that it be to God, and that it be sung. Those three elements, praise to God and sung. We, the church has expanded on Augustine's definition ever since. So we not only have hymns that are addressed to God. In this case, um, we have hymns that are a call to worship to one another, we remember the beloved saints who have gone before us, even though we can't actually talk to them. But uh, when you address um, the poetic device, when you address a being who is not present, um, is called apostrophe. So we're using apostrophe here to address the angels and saints. And ultimately, um, there are even a few call to worship hymns that include um, the created nature, uh, the forces of nature, uh, and all sort of a psalm, um, the last couple of psalms in the Psalter that address um, all, of, all, all of creation. The most classic of that would be um, All Creatures of Our God and King, which addresses thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with soft, I mean, thou, uh, thou silver moon with softer gleam, and the clouds that rush um, along. It's not a pantheistic hymn. It's a universal call to nature. Okay. Um, there are a couple of more handouts if anybody still needs them. <clears throat> so, accuracy, audience, biblical roots of a text and allusions, um, Christology, and cultural, con well, number five is context. which is very broad. <coughs> that would be cultural, historical, and compositional, um, which would be the circumstances surrounding the writing of the text or the tune um, by that individual writer, um, which a lot of hymn story, hymn story kind of devotional books focus on the compositional circumstances. But there's the whole broader um, spectrum as well of the cultural context. Um, in terms of that, Watts, that amazing Watts text that I gave you, I was astonished that this terrifying text on God's judgment appears published in a hymn book by Samson Ockham, who was an um, early American um, tune book compiler um, during the colonial period, um, who entitles the book, A Choice Collection of Hymns and Spiritual Songs Intended for the Edification of Sincere Christians of All Denominations. I don't know any denominations 
that now would sing their guilty ghosts of Adam's race shriek out and howl beneath thy rod. But the saints coming to worship in Occam's time in, the, in these New England Puritan chapels were willing to lift their voices and sing about God as being a terrifying judge to those who continually reject him. <clears throat> Number six, and we can go back and revisit some of these a bit more if there is time, but just so that we um, remain on track. Doctrinal themes. There's a whole world of doctrine. The important point here is that one hymn doesn't say it all, and as a songwriter and hymn writer, you don't have to put the pressure on yourself. Matt Boswell told us the other day that he tried 80 times to write In Christ Alone, and he never succeeded, meaning that hymn has a pretty much the broadest uh, scope uh, of any hymn, um, and so that is not necessary to do in, in every text that you write or in every text that the church sings. Um, going along with that, doctrine needs, even if one hymn doesn't say it all, doctrine needs to be articulated clearly and not misleadingly. Dr. Kirkley, yes. can you elaborate on what you mean when you say not misleadingly? Um, there's a way of not saying the full truth that can ultimately give a skewed picture. Okay. We've been through um, the 80s where intimacy with Christ was, and early 90s, was so emphasized um, almost at the expense of his transcendence. And so um, in terms of folks who come in, in the pews and attend for any length of time, whether they're believers or not, what is the picture, the full or picture of Christ, of God that they're getting? So not, not leaving any room that you might be guests. Not leaving much room. Much room. Now, um, a hymn is a poem. Poetry is distilled language, and um, sometimes there's even the poetic device of um, dropping a word so that you can fit um, the metrical line. But don't drop what's important um, and if you're trying to fit the meter of your line so badly that you lose meaning, don't do it. However, a hymn is not a sermon. It's not um, propositional truth. So um, the word poetic license has to be used very sparingly, more sparing than salt, <laughs> but, but it is a consideration. So doctrinal themes. Um, and doctrinal themes also goes back to number one what is the hymn actually saying <clears throat> one example might be a hymn that um, was written at the turn of the 20th century um, I didn't provide it for you but I can read a stanza or two what is the hymn saying what are the doctrinal themes and what is the Christology Jesus, thou divine companion, 
by thy lowly human birth, thou hast come to join the workers, burden bearers of the earth. Thou, the carpenter of Nazareth, toiling for thy daily food, by thy patience and thy courage, thou hast taught us toil, work is good. Have we, what are the names and titles of Christ so far? Jesus, thou divine companion, and also carpenter of Nazareth. We, that's all we've got so far. Uh, let's press in a bit. They who tread the path of labor follow where thy feet have trod. Amen. They who work without complaining do the holy work of God. Thou, the peace that passes knowledge, dwellest in the daily strife. Thou, the bread of heaven, art broken in the sacrament of life. Um, last two lines of the hymn, Jesus, thou divine companion, help us all to work our best. Bless us in our daily labor. Lead us to our Sabbath rest. What are the doctrinal themes and what's the Christology? Work is good. Perseverance. Good Protestant work ethic. Yes, I hear that. Uh huh. I think I'm going to teach this to my kids. Um, anything else? Did we hear or sing the word Lord, Christ, Savior, King? majesty, any of that. We heard divine companion at the beginning and end of the hymn. The device is called inclusio. It's like bookends. But um, do you remember the, the labor movement? American history, okay, it's starting to come back. And this is from a time period also of the rise of social gospel awareness in America. And the social gospel hymns tend to emphasize the humanity of Christ. <clears throat> not the deity, not the majesty, not the soon-returning king, not the lord of the cosmos, none of that. So um, we're able to, just by asking some basic questions and sort of having a, a, a clear checklist in our mind of, of looking for the Christology and looking for, for doctrinal themes, uh, I'm not going to ask I don't think anyone's probably sung that hymn um, any of your churches have a Saturday work day pulling weeds <laughs> I mean you might pull this out sometime but by and large this would not be your Sunday morning um, you know hymn because it really does not exalt Christ um, as, as the scriptures does it focused on one aspect of, of Jesus life um Number <clears throat> We lost a couple numbers. That's okay. Direction of thought is the actual number 7. And you might also put in parentheses development of thought. Um This feeds into the working definition of him that I use, again, we expand on Augustine's definition, but a multi-stanza um, text with a development of thought across stanzas that is generally intended for congregational singing. Multi-stanza text with a development of thought. That's, that's part of the working definition here. And um, so let's look for that. 
Uh, I have a couple of examples on the page. Um, there might be hymns that use, or you could write one that uses itemization by stanza, again, um, to explore the claims of Christ, the I am claims, as truth, the life, the way. And there's a lovely hymn by George Herbert, um, 17th century poet, which does that. Can you think of hymns that um, use language about pilgrim through the wilderness, and then about crossing the Jordan, and then about Canaan? Um, the Old Testament typology, uh, speaking of biblical roots and biblical allusion, the Old Testament typology of journeying um, through the wilderness of Israel's journeys as an uh, analogy of our Christian life is very prevalent in hymns and in sermons for centuries. You can just think of those categorically as the language of Canaan hymns. So crossing um, Egypt is, is our sinful life. And Satan is Pharaoh because he's got us in chains while we're, while we're still in sin. Crossing the Red Sea represents what? Our conversion, yes. And so um, that analog, that analogy is, is huge. Um, and then the wilderness is where we are right now. That's our Christian life in this earth, which has trials, which has rocky, thorny paths at times. But we're headed across this wilderness to cross the... Jordan River um, into Canaan. If Canaan is heaven, then what's the Jordan River? Death. And certainly the whole genre of African-American spirituals, for example, has some wonderful spirituals, roll Jordan, roll. You know, the Jordan River is chilly and cold, alleluia, um, as a reference, as a metaphorical reference to death. So language of Canaan hymns. The hymn I had in mind here is um, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah which you can write that in. Um, another direction of thought might be moving from praise to God for creation or for nature, and then praise to Christ for his crucifixion, and then praise and anticipating his second coming. What hymn am I thinking of? How Great Thou Art. Who said that? See, I should be bringing extra books like Matt Boswell. and <laughs> I've got some water bottles. Okay, um, How Great Thou Art. Um, oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Letter D, and this is a, the huge scope of what theologians call the Christ event from incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, um, and return. Um, four stanzas. What am I thinking of? Well, certainly in Christ alone. But that actually includes also sort of our personal um, experience of um, the narrative. And uh, as I referenced earlier, uh, if you start with a scriptural theme or even a scriptural verse, um, I'm thinking of great is thy faithfulness in verse 1, and then verse 2 explores God's faithfulness in the stars and the planets and the seasons, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness. And then the third stanza is, of course, part my past. I've experienced pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, and then uh, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So greatest thy faithfulness would be that last one. Yes? Um, Christ the sure and steady anchor. Towards the end of that, um, we will cross that great horizon clouds behind and life secure. 
Thank you. It is. There's a progression of thought there. In fact, Matt spoke to uh, some students the other day and talked about um, circumstances in his own life, in their church. They were going through some very rough times, and um, that hymn was birthed during that season and, and looks forward to, in the last stanza, looks forward to reaching the harbor. You know, you don't want to just be dropping anchor in the middle of the ocean for your whole life. Um, finally, uh, there's a lot of Ds here. I sort of got stuck on the Ds. Direction of thought. Oh, read with devotion. You and I should read hymnals not only to shop for new congregational hymns, but to, uh, and not just to serve our own people, but uh, we should read and pray them as part of our own love life to the Lord. Um, next one is um, expression, emotions expressed. What are the emotions expressed in the text, or what are the emotions evoked in us? Um, singing as the gathered church engages our affections, our joys, and our griefs. John A. Broadus, the second pre president here at Southern Seminary, who was the first person to teach him, one of the first people to teach hymnology in the United States as part of theological education, he taught it as part of his preaching class. And he urges um, always, he urges pastors always to choose hymns that include more warmth and perhaps more sympathetic <laughs> hymns rather than hymns which are simply didactic and cold. Um, we should evaluate the Christian experience that's expressed in a hymn. And let me point your attention to the very top of your handout. Timothy Dudley Smith, retired very evangelical um, Anglican bishop in Great Britain um, and wonderful hymn writer, wrote four criteria for a good hymn. It should be true to scripture, as we've already discussed. It should be true to the generality of Christian experience, by which he meant you don't want to have some very peculiar visionary um, experience as the normative language that we are putting in the mouth of um, our congregations, because not everyone is going to be in the seventh heaven like Paul was. Um, so uh, technical merit or poetic craft needs to be present and then fourth, the element of inspiration, some spark, some element of inspiration. Let's move on quickly. Um, oh, I just have to say, um, the emotions expressed are hugely important as we are responsible to put these words into the mouth of God's people. My husband grew up in a wonderful church, but in their youth group they sang, and this would have been in the 60s, a Christian a Christian always smiles. He never wears a frown. So we'll let our biblical counseling friends just <laughs> go crazy over that. Next is metrical flow and poetic form. Um, and basically, uh, let's just start with, um, I'm sorry, nine is going to be foot and meter. If you do not know poetic foot, um, there is basically... There are four main choices in English language hymnody. Weak strong, weak strong is iambic. Um, that would be, oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. The opposite of that is strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong. Um, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. That is called trochaic. Um, then you have two other patterns. Uh, weak, weak, strong. There's a land that is fairer than day, and my, by faith I can see it afar. 
and the Father looks <laughs> over the way to prepare me as a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, it shall dwell in... You get it. Okay. So that is um, anapestic. And the reverse of anapestic is dactylic. Um, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It's a wonderful hymn. We don't sing it for some crazy reason. Um, you can dig it up. Um, as you see at the bottom of, I think it made it onto the hymnal um, handout. Say again, please, those last two times. Um, in the sweet by and by is called anapestic. And worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness uh, is dactylic. Another example of that would be the lovely Advent hymn, um, Brightest and Best of the Sons of the Morning. So um, why is this important? Um, well, form starts at the level of the syllable. Um, and so once you've identified the foot, um, these are organized generally predominant in English hymnody are eights. So uh, line, um, the sequence of numbers that you see in the hymnal is called line meter. And in the case of Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, you would see 8888 in the hymnal because there are four lines of eight syllables. And um, this, just knowing what I've said right now, will help you to switch tunes if you need to. And if you feel that a tune given to you is not really the best suited for a text. Most hymnals are equipped with a metrical index at the back and you can look up under these numbers. Um, the next item it's listed here as number 10 would be form in general. So we've talked about we've talked about itemization by um, <clears throat> um, by stanza and that's what would be present here in the um, four stanzas of, of Baxter's hymn. I could say more, but let's move to um, a le the letter G, which is genre. Once um, we're aware of um, the content and what the hymn is really saying, then it's easier to identify what the genre is, whether it is a, a prayer hymn, a hymn of confession. Um, um, s some hymns are a ballad in terms of a narrative um, there were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. It's essentially a, a valid version of the parable of the lost sheep. Um, so identify the literary genre. That's helpful. Um, and once we do that, then uh, the next item is, is text music relationship. And that's where everybody wants to park because <laughs> you know, everyone is a musician. But I hope that um, the time we've spent looking at the text is, is helpful first then it's easier to see whether there's compatibility between the text and the tune. Um, finally, um, usage. When, um, when we've really spent time unpacking um, the text and looking at the tune, then the usage, or in parentheses, liturgical function um, becomes more impaired. Where, whether you want to use it at the beginning as a call to worship or whether you want to use um, it as a preparation for the preaching that used to be called that place in the liturgy used to be called the prayer of illumination and I love the Gettys um, uh, the one about 
the word of God. Speak, O Lord. Thank you. I love that as a prayer of illumination, as an opening, um, as, a, as a hymn right before we open God's word together, right before the preaching. Um, do you have questions before we close up entirely? Um, so the last F is form. Um, not just form at the level of the syllable and the line meter, but, but the overall form. Um, I like to encourage students to look for this in, in the Psalms as well. For instance, if you're working on a scriptural text, look at the form within that text. What is the form of Psalm 8? Is there any particular kind of structure there? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. That line is actually at the end as well, so it uses that divisive inclusio. Um, if you paraphrase that as a musical setting, you may not need a chorus, just use that one refrain at, you know, at the top and bottom. Um, in um, other questions? You mentioned yes. the definition of, of the hymn. You said it has to be multi-stanza, developing thought. With a development of th thought across stanzas and generally intended to be sung congregationally. There's a bit of leeway there since um, historically some hymns that we sing congregationally were originally written as a part of a large devotional poem. Um, from the Middle Ages of the Father's Love Begotten was from a long theological poem um, that um, Prudentius was writing actually to try to up uphold the dual nature of Christ and the full divinity of Christ. And so he talks about, you know, that Christ is pre-existent. He wasn't just created later on. He's co-eternal with the Father. If you unpack that hymn carefully in your hymn book, um, those are reasons why he wrote that. So... There are congregational hymns that we sing that are more intimate, but generally um, we need to be able to enter into them corporately. So that's why I said generally intended to be sung congregationally. How many of you have retuned a hymn, an older hymn? Do you add text? Have you written an additional chorus or just you don't mess with the text? Okay. <laughs> well... Um, in terms of doctrinal themes, I would just add as well, um, we talked about singing about the Trinity. Um, Holy, Holy, Holy was written as a hymn for Trinity Sunday in, in the church year. And so it's not as if the author was unaware of the crucifixion. He just chose not to include that in that particular hymn. That is one of the few hymns that is very blunt about our own um, unholiness compared to the perfect holiness of God and though the eye of sinful man his glory may not see so um, yes there's a modern version out that uses a um, cross centered stanza um, that brings in the cross and the, and the redemption but we lost um, there, there's usually a trade off when, when people add new material to a text so um, if you um, remember that not one hymn does not have to say and cannot say everything, then maybe that allows us to think about more specialized uses of individual hymns and, and unpack them for what they do contain before you cut anything. Let me just urge that. Yes? 
what resources would you recommend for getting at that cultural, historical, and or compositional context for hymns? Oh, this thank you. It's easy to find, you know, 101 hymn stories book, but there's like 300 <coughs> hymns in my hymnal. You know, there's, so there's a bunch of hymns that aren't being hit there. So what are other resources you would recommend for, uh, for getting the background for these songs? Yes. Um, the newest um, dictionary now online, uh, <coughs> I don't have the entire um, email or, or web address memorized, but just Google Canterbury Dictionary Online. It's .uk because it's a British source, and there, there are actually fine articles by recent um, excellent scholars, including articles, an entire article on certain hymns, the really famous hymns and then on various hymn writers. For digging up texts, I would definitely, as your first stop, go to hymnary.org. How many of you are aware of hymnary? Okay, of course, thank you. Um, and while we're talking about sources, I'm so ha happy and thankful that our, um, the editor of the new Watts, Mr. Chris Fenner, was able to join us. He is um, in the upper echelons of the seminary library here in the archives. <laughs> He is the rare hymnal and rare book um, collections um, archivist specialist. So we have an amazing hymnal collection going back to actually Dr. Broadus in the 1850s and 60s who was acquiring um, antique hymnals even at that time. And Chris, we're so appreciative. He's available for autographs if you've bought, how many of you have bought the Watts? <laughs> okay, so we're all gonna go out and do that. Um, but um, Chris, anything you wanna add? Or sources, resources? Um, yeah, most, uh, most denominational hymnals uh, have, have companions that are published separately. Uh, the newest Baptist hymnal does not, uh, the 1991 does, and all the Baptist hymnals before that. So, um, so a lot of times when they, uh, if you can find a hymn in a denominational hymnal and then find the companion or handbook that goes with it, then the handbook will have Thank you. And Chris also helps people all over the country, so if you run into a research snag, um, his email address is up here and you can contact him. Yes? Earlier we talked about the lack of hymns that deal with um, the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, are there a couple kind of rare gems that are not in our standard hymnals that you would know of and would recommend? Yes. Wesley wrote um, Come Holy Ghost and um, just, just Google Wesley and uh, with the hymnary.org it should also be in here um, if you want if you like hard copy this is the anthology I use for my hymnology class here um, Panorama of Christian Hymnody Routley and Richardson about 900 hymn texts not only British but there's a huge section of newer world hymns so I also use this in my world hymns class um, and there uh, as with any hymns, we, again, we 
prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. We test everything according to the scripture. Um, there are many, many uh, hymns written, especially in third world countries, in the midst of uh, such suffering and poverty. Hymns, um, many of them that point to, um, I see the face of Jesus Christ in, in every poor child. And almost a deification. Um, and, and so we just need to, again, be discerning and use... Um, everything that we can it's a great rich resource again if especially as your um church is becoming more multicultural or if you're doing missions week or doing any um sources that looking for sources um for materials like that yes when i came to christ my church thing from the baptist hymnal from 75 or wherever that hymnal was mm -hmm. um and we sang about 25 songs, maybe 20 songs, just over and over. We got to memorize them, but we didn't, we didn't do a lot of them. What's a quick distillation, maybe a, a phrase that would help folks uh, differentiate what was a gospel song in that hymnal and what, what was a hymn? I'm glad you asked. I wrote my <laughs> dissertation on the 19th century gospel hymns, um, which that genre sort of continued until about the 1950s, until um, the contemporary worship movement kicked in but um, many gospel hymns were or gospel songs were criticized for being very subjective um, and for being you know human centered but they don't all stand up they don't all um, deserve that criticism so um, what a friend we have in Jesus is a classic gospel song from that era and it's a wonderful Christ centered you know uh, it does talk about our human needs and, you know, have thy friends despised, forsaken thee, you know, and so on. And that does happen. And so it's a great hymn to turn to. But am I going in the direction that yes. you're headed? Yes. Okay. Um, the 90 and 9 is actually one of the classics from the gospel hymn era. So one thing I pointed out in my dissertation is that before 1900, those hymns tended to be more based on scripture narratives. There's a good one, an old one that's not sung anymore, um, called Jesus of Nazareth Passeth By, where the two blind men were by the side of the road, and they were being told that Jesus was passing by them. And so they reached out and cried, Jesus, Son of David. You know, and we don't sing a lot of those. After 1900, um, the gospel hymn became decidedly more superficial in certain respects. You have bright in the corner where you are, which is fine to do. And yes, Jesus wants us for a sunbeam, but we... But we can't do that and be that without the infilling and dwelling power of the Holy Spirit and, you know, transforming. Um, there are definitely gems and jewels that came after 1900 as well. Great is thy faithfulness. Um, and uh, from the mission field, how great thou art. How great thou art has an amazing journey coming through Russia and being translated in a couple of different times. But, but yeah, so there are gems that did come you know, in, in the 20th century. And then there are the hymns that get picked on a lot, like In the Garden or, or The Old Rugged Cross. Well, what I find interesting in the hymn renewal movement is that we now have, oh, the rugged cross, my salvation, right? We now borrow phrases from these older hymns and put them together in new collage kinds of ways um, in things that we're writing now. <coughs> 